0: Well, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah chapter 3, and I'm not going to read the the whole chapter to you, and when we read some of the verses, you'll see why, Uh, and I'll just go ahead and make a a confession to you. Nehemiah chapter 3 is one of those chapters in the Bible that you might normally um, skim, (laughs) speed read. Uh, There are parts of the scripture that are uh, compelling, they are deep, they are so rich with truth, and we can't escape the the gravity of them that we just could spend days and weeks looking at one passage and one chapter and just soaking it all in. And then there's chapters like Nehemiah chapter 3 that... uh, You don't just have this blessing of a list of names, but Nehemiah in this chapter adds not just the names of the people who were doing the work, but the specific area in which they worked. Because that really means something to you. You know about all these gates and valleys and uh, parts of the city that were being rebuilt. And as I continue my confession even now, I had not planned to give Nehemiah chapter 3 its own sermon. Uh, If you look at my plan, which Janet and Donette and maybe a couple other people have seen, uh, Nehemiah 3 and 4 were meshed together in in one sermon, and the main point was in chapter 4, and 3 just sort of served as a backdrop, an introductory uh, section to what comes next. But the more time that I spent in this chapter this week, the, the more it became clear to me that I think there are some things that are useful to us and helpful and can build up the church, at least some observations that that need to be made. You see, just to recap, since we've missed a couple of weeks for Easter, in Nehemiah chapter 1, you've got this man who is the king's cupbearer, and he receives word from his brothers that the city of Jerusalem is in disrepair. It's in ruins. Everything is laid waste. The gates are burned. The walls are torn down. And he is burdened. He can't do anything but sit and fast and weep over the condition of his city. And he continues on in prayer and he comes to the Lord and says, Lord, is this really what is to be of your city and uh, the city of your people? Is this really what it's going to be like? And he begins to pray that the Lord would give him an audience with the king, give him the king's favor, the king's ear, so that something might be done about the, the state of Jerusalem. And he prays, we see, for about four months. This prayer, he's fasting, he's praying, he's asking the Lord to do a work in Jerusalem. And then one day as he's bringing wine to the king, as he does daily, the king happens to notice this day that Nehemiah is sad. When you're the king's cupbearer, you don't want to come to the king sad because you don't want him to think anything's wrong. Uh, You know, you're tasting the food and the drink that he's about to eat. Uh, You want him to have the warm and fuzzies when you come in the room. But he comes in, the king sees that he's, he's sad. He, he said, this is nothing but, but sorrow of heart. What's wrong, Nehemiah? And he says, how could I be happy? Why shouldn't I be sad? Because of the, the city of my father's is in ruins. And so the king asks him what he wants. He gives him the time off. He gives him all the supplies to go and to do the work that needs to be done in Jerusalem. God has given Nehemiah favor with the king. So he goes and in chapter 2, we later in chapter 2, we see that he goes to Jerusalem to, to see it with his own eyes, to survey the, the city and the walls and the work that needs to be done. And then finally he comes and he gathers the elders, the, the leaders of the people there in Jerusalem and he calls them to action. He says, rise up and build. And just as he asked them to do, just as he had called on them to do, the people did just that, they rose and... Began to build. Now, chapter 3 shows us this that chapter 2 wasn't just some exciting speech from Nehemiah that got the crowd worked up, and then after the, the, the crowd dispersed, the excitement fizzled out. No, the people really did take action. And that's what we see in chapter 3. They really did rise up to build. And let me just say this before we dive into it. It's easy sometimes to sit in a church service or listen to a sermon online. And you hear somebody talking. And maybe the the, the speaker, another one, not me, another speaker is dynamic and just really interesting. And and you get really into what he's saying. And you say, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do this. Let's get into the work of God. Let's be faithful and, and do what God has called us to do. And then we have the including prayer, the crowd disperses, we go to lunch, and life goes on. Does that sound familiar? In my life, it goes that way for me too. It's easy. It's our natural state. But let us, like the people here in Jerusalem, not just hear the Word and get excited about it for a little while, but actually go on from the excitement and just get to it. Just, just get to work already. And so I just want to make some observations about the people and their work here in in Nehemiah chapter 3. I've just got a handful of things for you. One, notice this, the positions and titles didn't keep some people from working. If you look there in verse 1, the chapter begins with a man named Eliashib the high priest. He says, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Here we see these religious leaders, these priests, the the men whose normal job it was to bring sacrifices, to intercede uh, for the people uh, uh, to God and to, to bring sacrifices to Him. And here they are, they decide to be the first ones, they lead by example, they get up and get to work. Building a sheep gate, building walls is not their their usual task, but they wanted to set an example for the people, so they jumped right into the work. They didn't let their title, their position keep them from joining in. I think this can be applied very easily to anyone who has a position of leadership in a church, to pastors, to teachers, to deacons. We like to, to talk about what the Bible says and to tell people what God says we should do. But unless really the leaders get in and work and do by, lead by example, it's really hard for that to catch on with anybody else in the congregation. You see, a, a year or so ago, I did a cohort with some other pastors in, in Clemens, and we had some one-on-one coaching sessions there and I was talking to, to, to one man, and we were talking about the state of evangelism in our church. This has been a year ago. And uh, the, we didn't really feel like people were, were sharing the gospel. We're talking about Jesus in everyday conversations and, and talking about the church as a whole. And, and his name's Mike. And Mike looked right at me, and he said, well, Jacob, let me just go ahead and ask you this before we talk about your church. He said, how are you doing in your personal evangelism? And I said, Mike, I didn't come here to talk about me. <laughs> you know, we just talk about the church, right? <laughs> we, want the, we want everybody else to jump in and do the work. But you see, until the people who are, who are up front, the people who are standing in the Sunday school rooms, the people who sit in the deacons' meetings, the people who stand behind the pulpit, are faithfully involved in the everyday work of Christian living, we can't really expect the people in the pews to get to work either. And so let me just leave that as a challenge to all of you who have any kind of position of authority. Get to work. Lead by example. Don't let a position or a title hold you back or make you feel like you're above doing some other task. He mentions not just the priests, but some leaders of districts and half districts. Verse nine, he says, uh, "The next to them are Raphaah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs." And you can look at verse 12, and then verse 16, 17, 18, 19, these basically politicians in the area jumped in and did the work. Now we'd all pass out if some politicians jumped in and got and did some real work, right? But the point is this, those who were in positions of leadership did not see themselves above the task, but they got in with the rest of the people and did the work. For politicians, for religious leaders, there's no sense of entitlement, there's no suggestion that they were there to merely oversee the work. There are people who are called and who have the gifting to oversee the work of others. But I don't really think you're qualified to oversee any work until you've been willing to do the work yourself. And there's no point, let me just say this, there's no point in the Christian life where we get to just stand back and say, Well, I've been around a while, I've done my share, time for someone else to get in here and do something for me now. I've seen this in churches, thankfully I haven't really seen it here, but I've seen this in churches before where, where you've got members that have been there their whole lives, they've been involved in ministry for decades, and they get to an age where they feel like they've got just enough white hair on their head that they can sit back and somebody else needs to serve them from here on out. Don't get that attitude. The Christian life does not have a retirement plan in this world. The benefits are great after you leave. But here, we are to work until our last breath and to do the work that God has called us to do. There is no sense of entitlement here. Our work may change with time. That's fair. You know, we've seen pastors who have been in ministry for a long time and they they say they're retiring. But really what that means is they're just going to do some other kind of work. Uh, Y'all know Dale Wallace, okay? The man's never going to quit. Our, our work may change with time. We may not always be able to do the same things we've always done. Our health or, or other circumstances may prevent that. But there's no point where entitlement kicks in and we decide we're just going to sit back from here on out. That doesn't happen. Especially for people who are in positions of leadership and authority. We have to be in the work ourselves if we want others to join in God's work. And another thing to notice, some people did work that they weren't used to. And maybe even work they weren't qualified to do. We read verse 1 there about the priests, they they jumped in and built, but look there at verse 8 as well. Verse 8 says, next to him, Uziel, the son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. If I start a a sentence like this, a a priest, a goldsmith, and a perfumer are building a wall, it sounds like the beginning of a very bad joke. Something's going to go wrong. Because priests and goldsmiths and perfumers aren't the people you usually see building buildings and repairing walls. And they probably came to this task with some sort of felt inability or deficiency to do the work. But they didn't let that felt inability, that deficiency, keep them from working. And that too applies in the church, that we can't let our sense of inadequacy, our, our sense of inability, keep us from ministering in the places that God puts us. There are lots of times that we, 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 come to, we see openings and jobs that need to be done and ministry that needs to happen. And we're, we're praying that the Lord will give us somebody to fill that role. And maybe there's someone who's available to do it. And you ask them and they're like, I cannot do that. I'll just tell you one of my weak spots I don't do a good job, I don't feel like I do a good job of keeping the attention of children. Okay, I've got two in my house that don't listen to me. You expect me to sit down, I'm sorry Joel, you expect me to sit down with a group of 10 or 12 and say, listen up guys, got something to say. But if that's the area in which God is working, and those are the people I need to minister to, I've got to set my own felt deficiencies aside and say, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, I need you to just take care of this and help me with this. Help me do what you're calling me to. If he shows you a need of any kind, I mentioned kids, but anything. If he shows you a need, he opens a door for you to minister and to serve. God will supply everything you need to do the work he calls you to do. You think that the God who loves you enough to send His own Son to die on a cross, to rise from the dead, to save you, to forgive your sins, to put His Holy Spirit in you when you believe in Him, won't give you what you need to serve Him? Of course He will. He will equip you for every good work and enable you to do it. It's especially true, remember Paul says, that His strength is made perfect in our weakness. It's in the places where I feel weak and I feel deficient that God's strength and God's power gets to be put on display. Because it wouldn't happen otherwise. And notice another thing. Some worked with their, their families in front of their own homes. Verse 10 there says, Next to them, a Jediah, son of Hermaph Haramaph, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush the son of Habaniah, made repairs. Verse 12 says next to him was Shalom, the son of Halahesh, the leader of the half district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. You can look at verse 23 and verse 30. You see others who were doing work right there in front of their home. Now, it may be a daunting task to try to build a wall around an entire city. And you may not know where to start. But if you step out your front door and you look out and you see part of the wall right there in front of you that's falling apart... Just go ahead and start right there. You, maybe you know that God wants you to serve Him. You know that He wants you to bring Him glory, but you don't know where to start. Can I just go ahead and tell you the, the first and most necessary place for you to start ministry? Start at home. Start at home. Start with your spouse, start with your kids, your parents. Even your siblings. You should be a witness. You should be sharing the gospel. Start at home. Make sure your family knows about Jesus. Make sure your family has heard the gospel and believed. You should be making disciples and teaching people who believe in Jesus everything that Jesus commanded. Where do you start? Start at home. Maybe you have a way that you're already ministering to someone in your community or in this church. Here's a suggestion. Take your kids. Oh, they'll just get in the way. Yeah, they probably will. But they'll remember that you took them. They'll remember seeing a mom and a dad or a grandparent who loved the Lord enough to take time out of their schedule to go serve Him and to minister to other people and to share the gospel. What do you think that'll do in the in laying the foundation of a child's life when that's the example that they see before them. Start at home. Start in your own home. Start with your own kids. Look for opportunities to be a witness. Look for opportunities to minister for the Lord. That's normal Christian living, but it's that much better if you can include your family and do it together. Another observation. Some jobs were um, more desirable than others. That's really an understatement. Look at verse 14 and 15 together here. Verse 14 says, Malkajah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Hechorim, repaired the refuse gate. If you got an old King James, it says the dung gate. That's an exciting place to work. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Verse 15 says that Shalom, the son of Kolhose, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. Now those two verses, I'm glad they're right next to each other. Because you've got the one guy over here who's working the refuse gate. The trash heap. The place where people carry all their garbage, all their filth, to dump it. And then the very next guy we hear about is the guy who gets to work by the pool. Next to the king's garden. Smell the flowers. Enjoy the scenery. You get hot, take a dip in the pool. And they both completed their task. Now if you had to choose one of these, which would you choose? I'm going to pick the workplace with a pool and a garden, not the landfill. One certainly was more desirable than the other, but both gates still had to be built. The work still had to be done in both places. And we just read these two verses. There's no word of complaint recorded here. I'm sure at some point in the work, somebody walks by with a load of something and just say, man, did you, that's awful, man. You know, that other gate, the one with the pool and the garden, that would have been nice. Couldn't we have gotten that assignment? But there's no hint here of bad attitudes, complaints, grumbling. Friends, let me, let me just say this to you. The only ideal place to serve God is the place where he puts you. The only ideal place to serve God is the place where He puts you. Now, no matter where He puts you, there's going to be problems that come up. There, there were problems, I'm sure, at the pool and at the garden when they were doing the work. I'm sure they had their share of challenges. And anywhere we serve, we can look for reasons to try to go somewhere else or do something different. But the best place, the only place where you will serve the Lord and have true peace and really accomplish something that's worthwhile in eternity is the place where God puts you. And I'll just, I see it in pastors sometimes they'll go to a church and they'll stay there three, four, five years. And maybe things went well the first two or three. And then you get into years three, four, and five, and things start getting tough. And, and people start having bad attitudes about stuff, or you try to change something and people get mad at you. And a lot of them just get frustrated. and They say, oh, I don't have to deal with this. There's plenty of churches that need a pastor. I'm out of here. And they leave and they go to another church. And you know what happens there? The first two or three years go, okay, everybody loves them, and you get to years three, four, and five, and things people start complaining, and you start to change something, and you step on somebody's toes, and they say, well, I don't have to put up with this. There's plenty of churches that need a pastor, and then they leave, and they spend their whole career like that. Friends, find the place that God wants you to serve. Plant your feet and stay there. Do it faithfully until he tells you to move and makes it clear. You be faithful. I'll just be honest with you. I'll go ahead and tell you this. If somebody asked me for my resume today, I'd have to search for it. I have no idea where it is. You know why? I don't keep it updated. Because I have no plans. This is the church that God has placed me in. And somebody's asked me before, you know, like, that's a good church, that's a good church for you to start in and get going in your ministry. And usually my reply is, it's also a good place to finish. they got a nice cemetery across the road, they got plenty of land, the grass is well kept. Why are you, why are you telling me just, that's a good place to start in? I've got 40, 50 years maybe to serve the Lord in ministry. Why not invest it in one place if the Lord will allow it? God is good. God has put us in the places that that He wants us to serve. And unless He sends a whale to swallow you and spit you out on a shore somewhere else, metaphorically, hopefully, stay there and work and be faithful where He's put you. Can we look at some New Testament passages? Flip to Romans 12. Romans 12. These are some some helpful observations, I think, that we can apply to the context of the church. I want you to know that I'm not just making this up. I'm not just pulling something from the Old Testament and sticking it on the New, and it's not really what God intended. Romans 12, verse 3, he says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You belong to the body of Christ if you're a Christian. When you were saved, God baptized you in the Holy Spirit. He united you with, He united you with Christ in His death. You're now living to God in the power of the resurrection. We talked about that last week. And you are a member of Christ's body. It's called the church. And you need the church. You are just one member. You won't make it on your own. There's no such thing as, as, as lone wolf Christianity. There's no uh, desert island Christianity. There's, there's nothing about being a Christian that says it's okay to be by yourself. People who say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Well, it's really hard to say I love the head, but I don't love the body. Because that's the comparison that we're given. Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. You don't really love Jesus the way he wants you to love him if you don't love his church. And God has given us various gifts, various abilities to be able to function and serve in the church. Keep flipping to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. It's just the next book over. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 17. He kind of makes... The, this is something you might see in a cartoon. This is it's sort of humorous if you think about it. He says in verse 17, If the whole body were an eye... You just imagine that. The next verse, he says, "If the whole body were an ear, there's no other body parts. All you've got is just one big eye." He says, "If you've got, if the whole body's an eye, where's the hearing? Huh? Exactly. And if the the whole body were an ear, where would be the smelling? That would be a sad life. I I married a wonderful cook." I love it when the house just permeates with a smell of food, any kind. I'm not picky. And if your whole body was an ear, you'd never smell a thing. And that's the point that Paul is saying. We can't all have the same job. We can't all have the same function. Because if we did, we'd be handicapped. Listen, if everybody wanted to get up here and preach on Sunday morning, that would be a disaster. Look what he goes on to say. He says verse 18, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, listen to this last phrase, just as He pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. The, the place where God has put you, the gifts that he has given you, he gave them to you for a reason. He did it because it pleased him to give it to you. Man, how could we complain when God has loved us and cared enough for us and wanted us to be a part of his church to the extent that he's given us gifts that we can use to serve his body? And there's some attitudes that come along with that. Verse 21 says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. If you have a love and a passion for one ministry, and somebody else has a love and a passion for another ministry, and you don't feel like they're as involved in yours as they ought to be because they're so involved in theirs, the attitude is not to say, I don't need you but it's to recognize that God has given giftings giftings to each individual to carry out ministry in the body just as it pleased him. And yes, some of us feel weak, we feel insignificant, we feel like the gifts we have aren't really all that important or we're not all that good at them. But he says here, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Now I think about this, this little finger right here, not even the whole finger, but just this top part right here. How often do you use that thing? I mean, the kids use it a little bit. but I mean, you, I could look at this part of my little finger and say, it's not really that important. I, don't, I think I could be okay without it. But if you said, well, let's just cut it off and see, we wouldn't go for that, would we? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's, that, that's a dear part of my body now. I love it and I don't want to lose it. If you feel like you're just somebody's little finger, you're not really all that significant, I promise you, when you're not using your giftings, when you're not functioning as God has called you to function, the rest of the body knows it. The rest of the body feels that hurt, that, that missing piece. When one part of the body is injured, does the rest of the body just go on like normal? No. Any else stubbed your toe in the night? You're laying in the floor in tears. Over that little body part. It's just a little toe. It's not that significant. But when it hurts, the rest of the body hurts. Friend, each and every one of you are a gift to the church. You need the church. Because one little body part out on its own can't accomplish everything that needs to be done. You need the church. You need to be a part of the body. But also, the church needs you. The church needs you. Every one of you. Nobody's part is insignificant. Do what you can do for the glory of God. One more passage. Flip again. Ephesians 4. We're not going far. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts and and he's talking about these specific uh, offices and and gifts that he gave to the church. And he says in verse 11, he says, And he himself, that that is Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. For the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. See, a lot of times it's easy to, to look at a church and say, well, who's the minister there? Singular. And what they mean is, who's the guy who preaches on Sunday? How many ministers should a church have? A church should have as many ministers as it has Members. Every member is a minister, but he's given some the ministry of equipping others. Just go ahead and say this, and I'm not saying this because I'm lazy, all right? It is not my job to do all the ministry. The Bible says so. You know what a big part of my ministry is? To equip and train the saints for the work of ministry. To help you get involved in doing the things that God has gifted and called you to do. So if you have a passion, you have a burden, you have a a ministry or or some area that God's gifted you, come talk to me. I'll get behind you. As long as it's not biblical and unbiblical and weird, we'll get behind it. If we can minister to people, if we can have another avenue to share the gospel and make disciples, we'll do it. But God has given some for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And look at verse 13. He says, "Till we all come, all, till so we all come, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." God is using the church in your life to make each individual more like Jesus. And as we as individuals become more like Jesus personally, what does that do to our church corporately? It makes us a church that looks more like Jesus. So what do you do? You focus on your personal walk with the Lord. You get in his word, you pray, you spend time with him, you get rid of any sin in your life, you work on you what ministry has God called me to? How can I serve the church? And then as each of us do that and we're working together towards that same goal of being like Jesus and ministering the way he's called us to, we as a church become a very godly and Christ-like church. Isn't that what we want? It's absolutely what we want. We want to become that perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me just conclude by saying this. This is what Jesus died for. He didn't just go to the cross and die for sins so that you could be forgiven, get your get out of hell free card, and go on with your life. Now, Jesus did die for you so that your sins could be forgiven, but he did it so that you could be brought into his family, adopted into his body, the church. So that his church as a whole might one day be perfected and cleansed and presented to God the Father on Judgment Day. A beautiful bride for him. That's what we're working towards. It's not just about you. Yes, work on you. But it's about doing it for each other and doing it together. So let me just leave you with a couple of questions. One, have you been born again? Are you a part of the body of Christ? I hope by now the gospel is clear. Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the dead. You are apart from God. You are on your own. You are headed towards death and destruction because of your sin. But God loves you. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to give you eternal life. And he wants to bring you into his body, into his family, the church. And when we turn away from our sin, we turn away from our self, our self-righteousness, and we put our trust in Jesus. He does just that forgives all the sin, grants us eternal life, adopts us into his family. So have you been born again? If not, repent and put your trust in Jesus today. Second, lastly, if you are a member of his body, if you have been born again, are you functioning as a member in the place he has put you with the abilities he's given you? Are you plugged in, if you will, in the church? Are you connected to the body and doing what you were made to do? I don't know what that is for you, but we can talk about it. There are needs that the church has. Just on Wednesday night, we adopted some new safety policies for our children. I'm sure, Judy won't mind me mentioning this. And guess what? If we're gonna be able to put into practice and implement the policies that we've just adopted. We need some more workers. I'm not cut out to handle kids. Hey, we already addressed that. You hush, all right? (laughs) You may not feel equipped, but if God has opened the door for a ministry and you're not currently serving in any area of ministry, that may be where God wants you. Come talk to one of us. We'll get you plugged in. God's called us to evangelize, to share the gospel. To tell people the good news about Jesus. So, I don't really feel like I can do that. Well, guess what? This Wednesday, we're starting Gospel Conversations training. For the next six Wednesday, Wednesdays, we're going to share one tool that you can use to tell people about Jesus. It's not the only way to share the Gospel, but it's just a simple way to get into those conversations and to tell people about Jesus. So you know what you need to do? You need to be here Wednesday for Gospel Conversations training. The list could go on. There's lots of ways that you can serve. We we need more people on prayer teams. We're wanting to cover our community in prayer. Get on your knees. Confess to God your sin of neglect. And ask him, where do you want me to serve? How can I serve the body? As a functioning member. All for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that there's truth that's applicable to us, even in the passages we might tend to skim or skip over. Your word is true. It's sufficient. Everything we need is here in this book. Lord, I want to pray for two groups of people this morning. I want to pray first for those who don't know you, who are still in their sin, living their life for themselves. Bring them to repentance and faith today. I pray for those who have been born again, but aren't currently functioning in the body of Christ as you desire. Bring them to repentance as well. And Lord, I just want to say thank you for the faithful. Thank you for the ones who love you, who know you, who serve you, and do all kinds of ministry in this congregation. Lord, this place would not be doing what it's doing without them. And I'm thankful for them. So Lord, do your work in our hearts now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.